You're listening to The Lyric Feature on RTE Lyric FM. Good evening and welcome to The Lyric Feature. And for our first programme of the year, we'll be taking flight. For that is the name of a project that we first broadcast on Niall Carroll's classical daytime in autumn of last year. Taking Flight was a collaboration between Lyric FM and the Patrick Kavanagh Centre in County Monaghan, commissioning new works for radio from four different artists. Patrick Kavanagh once remarked that his more successful works achieved weightlessness, that I had become airborne and more, he said. This series celebrates Kavanagh's encouragement to successive generations to take flight by achieving their own weightlessness. The four artists are Jackie McCarrick, Tygo Sullivan, Anne-Marie Nicoron and Mancon McGann. And we'll hear all four of their works over the next hour. We'll begin with Tygo Sullivan, who is primarily a filmmaker and whose most recent film, To the Moon, is a meditation on the place of the moon in our human affairs. And it uses a vast array of lunar film sequences, both new and from the archives, to build a network of reflections and projections and intersections between down here and up there. His radio essay for this project is based around the poetry of Patrick Kavanagh. The Meadow is written in the voice of an unnamed fictional character whose long life has been lived in the rhythms and sounds of a place deeply known. This is The Meadow. Two fields over from a small lake in the lee of a gentle hill. A small acre is cut out of a small parish. This meadow's bounded on one side by hedgerow and trees, on another by a quiet road, on another by a stream. On the last, this small house that I was born in, It and its cluster of sheds has fallen quieter now. Generations of life swelled within it, took flight and passed. The meadow grew and matched this life, farmed variously as needs required left to the birds and wildflowers in later years. Three twisted apple trees form a border between garden and meadow. Moss and lichen soften an old bark, hiding nails for clotheslines, wire for fences, and the blue frayed remnants of a swing. The small red apples are for the birds now. Some last the winter, finally pushed off only by the pink blossoming of spring. At the bottom, held by gentle slopes of earth, the stream runs between a stand of trees in one corner to a small stone bridge at the other that carries the water beneath the road. The flat stones are slick and black. Beneath them, 
lurk darting sticklers that could, with small deft creeping fingers, be trapped and extracted. A pulsing panicked muscle in a small triumphant hand that would thrill in the capture briefly. Before opening, to a splash and a dart to safety. Winter would bring marble sheets of ice to the small pools to be picked and lifted like scabs. In the cold, lifeless months, the rectangle of field is diagonally cut by the ghost of a path from back door to far corner. The deep green trace appears in the low grass, worn by countless trips to the villager's school, shortened ever so slightly by cutting across to the easily vaulted wall of the bridge. The bridge itself was far enough to go sometimes, to sit above the water and see who one might see go on the road. Walkers, one way with their hands free to salute, an odd served on their return. In April, the cookie in the distance announcing spring. In the sodden edges of the meadow by the stream, the cookie flower, lady smock, lilac petals delicate on long stems. Beneath the trees, bluebell and celandine wake to shafts of light before the leaves draw the ground in shadow and speak of woodlands that once were before any farm or meadow was. The trees huddled together in the corner by the stream, spared by the marginal land beneath them. An old ash and its offspring. Two oaks and a towering lime tree. Its low horizontal branches feeling their way tentatively out into the meadow in a slow reclamation. Holly and hawthorn fill in the gaps. On the far side, oak, ash and sycamore rise out of the edge of a raised bank. The well-tended field beyond, painted brown by the plough every spring. The trees on our side had their names. Those on the far side were not mine to name. Except an ash and an oak that had grown entwined. The slender, younger ash having to run to the light through the dark arms of the older tree. These I called the twins. Later, the lovers. Across from them, the lightning tree with its deep vertical wound, 
the steeple tree unclaimable. The lookout tree, whose easy branches brought me high to a point where I could read and dream and know who might be calling me from the house or go on the road. Naming these things is the love act and its pledge. In winter, the trees keep to their own sides. Austere trunks lined up in opposition, asserting the cold politics of maps and land. As the bluebells fade, the trees reach across, folding together like hands in prayer dropping blossom and dappled light into the water below to be carried away to the village. Beneath, a cathedral is formed under a green roof. The choristers return. forget-me-nots insist quietly on the early loveliness of this quiet place. And the hedgerow itself soon, an explosion of white and lasting life. I am bounded by these white thorn hedges. The swallows return swooping through the gaping door of the shed and out again to hunt above the meadow and the life it draws to it. All there is growth. June sees foxglove and willow herb tower in the hedges, eye bright and self-heal deep in the grasses. Ragged robin, pink and unkempt near the stream. Meadow sweet, meadow sweet. the clatter of hooves along the road that announced the end of this idyll. Cattle sat by a neighbour to make a few pounds. Their hooves cut up the ground. Their dung saw the grass grow back in uneven clumps of green. They wore a path to the stream and sometimes calved in a transfixing miracle. I came to love each one. In other years, the grass would be left grow tall. Tall enough to hide a child in a book beneath a blue sky. Timeless beyond the grey finities of normal weather. 
and cocked. The heat and novelty made up for the loss of the grass before it too was taken away. The yellow stubble, hard and unlovely. I took once more my spot on the bridge and watched the people come and go. I watched as people went to school, to mass, to matches, as they made matches, as they fell in love. Little by little, glance by glance. <laughs> I watched as families grew in love and as they faded in rancor. Quicker to divide themselves than to divide a farm. I watched on a July evening as the youngest of the Kelly girls quietly left the parish. Never to be spoken of again. I watched myself walk past myself and head for life in Dublin without a backward glance. I watched myself disappear round the bend at the old wooden gate, having gathered up the bits of road that were not gravel to the traveller. I saw myself make a life away from this meadow by leaving a part of myself behind on the bridge to watch and listen to cut forever back along the green diagonal path, to watch the willow herb burst into a cotton cobweb of seeds once more, to see the last sweep of the swallow out the shed door, to hear from the step the cries of playtime, the sound of life and wonder beginning always. To close over the shutters and see my own initials scratched by a hand, six Christmases of age. Traced now by fingers many summers older. To peer through the narrow chink that lets in the wonder of the moonlight. Venus with her ecstasy. And the spirit of life never ending beneath it. To know from afar that I cannot die unless I walk outside these hawthorn hedges. That was The Meadow, written by Tygo Sullivan. The actor was Eleanor Methven, and the sound design and production were by Tygo Sullivan. That was the first of tonight's pieces from Taking Flight, a series of four radio essays by contemporary artists responding to Patrick Kavanagh's work. Our second piece this evening comes from the poet Anne-Marie Caroin, whose most recent collection, The Poison Glen, is published by Gallery Press. And it was also one of the librettists on Michael Gallen's recent opera, Elsewhere, about a short-lived Soviet in a Monaghan asylum when the hospital gates were barricaded and the attendants and patients took over. 
Her piece for this project also centres on a hospital, St. James's in Dublin 8, about which Kavanagh memorably wrote when he underwent surgery there in 1955. In this essay, Nicoroin revisits the hospital and reflects on Kavanagh's influence on her own poetry. This is Love Letter to the Hospital. A love letter to the hospital. Outside the main doors of St. James's Hospital, a man leans on a crutch and watches a flecked brown herring gull picking at the dirt. It is early evening and the sky over Dublin 8 is adrift with watery shadows. Nearby, the Lewis hums its iron song as the hospital campus thrums with taxis, bicycles and a stream of visitors, patients, staff. But the man seems oblivious to the world outside this bird. Here he stands utterly transfixed, as if under a spell, as if all purpose in him has led to this one act of looking. What is it that he sees? Is it the bird's strange beauty or poise? Is it the bird as an omen? Or does he see in the bird a reflection of himself that he has never encountered before? The man watches the gull, and I watch the man. And I think of my favourite poem by Patrick Kavanagh, written here on this exact site, and of how this poem speaks to the act of paying attention. The Hospital a year ago, I fell in love with the functional ward of a chest hospital. Square cubicles in a row, plain concrete, wash basins and art lovers' woe, not counting how the fellow in the next bed snored. But nothing whatever is by love debarred. The common and banal are heat, you know. The corridor led to a stairway, and below was the inexhaustible adventure of a gravel yard. This is what love does to things. The Rialto Bridge, the main gate that was bent by a heavy lorry, the seat at the back of a shed that was a sun trap, naming these things as the love act and its pledge. For we must record love's mystery without claptrap, snatch out of time the passionate transitory. For we must record love's mystery without claptrap, snatch out of time the passionate transitory. In the spring of 1955, Patrick Kavanagh was admitted here to St. James's, then known as St. Kevin's. He was suffering from cancer and required surgery to remove a lung. It was a diagnosis that came in the wake of a public and bitter libel trial. One might speculate that it was a dark time in the poet's life, and yet it was a time that he later described himself as a rebirth. In Hospital Notebook, recorded for radio, Kavanagh recounts experiences of light above the roofs of St. Kevin's, the constant stream of trolley stretchers that go past, and playfully a rainweather report before entering the operating theatre. In these notebooks, there is great clarity and light. And in reading his words, I return to questions that haunt me in my own work as a poet. How can a poem be a tool for excavation? 
in what ways can a poem transform darkness into light? And how can a poet honour and hold together the ghosts of trauma and survival? Like Kavanagh, my first awakening to place was shaped by an upbringing in rural Ireland. I grew up in northwest Donegal, in a landscape steeped in folklore, mythologies and the rich shadow light of gods and warriors moving glacially across the bogs. But 30 years ago, it was still a time in Ireland when church and state wielded an intense influence over the lives of rural working class people. And often, female meant least of all. In Kavanagh, I found a voice that burned with longing, with hunger, with grit, with desire, and with the keen sense of a life carved out against the harsh edge of reality. Here was a poet who knew the language that I knew, who knew all the grinds and rituals and extraordinary gifts and grievances of small community. Here was a poet who, like my own people, inclined towards the earth and who carried a feeling for what might be buried within it. When recently I began to explore in my poems the subject of St James's Hospital, specifically the history of the old Dublin Foundling Hospital of the 1700s, where it said that thousands of children died in dire conditions. It was to Kavanagh that I turned for answers. How to write out of such a dark landscape? How to find a way of blurring the lines between history and imagination? How to find the light trapped within or just below the surface of a place? In the hospital, Kavanagh weaves a love spell in the shape of a sonnet devoted at every turn to the idea that place, no matter how constructed, no matter how pocked or scarred, might be a veil through which we can glimpse the other world. Who of us cannot see the shimmering of Kavanagh's square cubicles in a row, or that of the inexhaustible adventure of the graveled yard? Who of us is not made vulnerable by the fragile images that act as hinges in the poem, the bridge, the gate, and the trap that might hold us or let us fall? And who can fail to be moved by the brute paradox of that bald declaration, but nothing whatever by love is debarred? In just this one sentence alone, where the words love and bar exist together, so intimately brushed up against one another, for better and for worse, world is at once both right and wrong. Love and cruelty, tenderness and violence, darkness and unexpected light. In my own long poem titled The Foundling Crib, I channel Kavanagh when I write. Pity the birds who will never know the moon's grace. Pity the foundlings gathered at a rare fire, cupped hands begging the heat. Pity their uplit cheekbones like the death petals of a cursed buttercup. In Kavanagh's poem, The Hospital, there is tension, paradox and the contradictions of life itself. Everybody said that for such a, a highly strong, sensitive person, I was an awfully good patient. Uh, visitors saw in me a man of remarkable fortitude, a virtue they never suspected. 
I was inclined to believe it myself. Like a lake within a lake, or a bog deepening within a bog, Kavanagh's influence keeps on flowering deeper into my work. And listening to his unique lilt, the rolling oars and earthy vowels, I am called to consider not only how poems of trauma and survival are shaped on the page, but how they live in the body. In Irish Gaelic culture, the spoken poem comes out of a long tradition, said to have commenced with the mythical bard Amergan, of carrying the poem on breadth, of embodying the poem's music, of striving for the arcs and peaks and rhythms and stresses of language, of making the shape of the poem with air. In reading aloud my own poetry, I'm often asking myself, what is the power of the poem in a public place as an act of protest or celebration? And what does it mean to stand on a stage and breathe images of historical loss out of the self and into the world? Kavanagh, with his distinctly deliberate reading style, demonstrates how, in the sound delivery of a text, silence can be broken or reclaimed and world fragmented or restored. Standing here outside St James's Hospital, of red brick and grey panels and unclean glass, I can hear Kavanagh echoing. Naming these things as the love act and its pledge. And in the end my thoughts are this. A poem is not a cause or a message or a balm. It's not simply an invitation to bear witness to history or to suffering. It is a way of looking deep down into the tunnel of the unanswerable and of finding there a thing you never expected to find, of connecting with an essence, of seeing in the herring gull a thing that you cannot tear your eyes away from. According to folklore, the gull heralds not only life of the sea, but of the missing dead. How oddly magical to observe them here circling overhead. And how oddly poignant that somewhere here Inside this hospital, Kavanagh left behind an aspect of his physical self in the form of a lung. The lung which is so much more than a simple pump. The lung which is an intricate paradox, fragile and strong, both protection and portal, and the strange nexus of a relationship with an environment that can either heal or harm us. It is said that in the deepest recesses of the lung, a wall as thin as a single cell is all that separates us from the world. Here in the skies over St. James's Hospital, a construction crane hangs mid-air today as workers in orange hives vests begin to pack up for home. Like many parts of Dublin, this heartland seems to be in a constant state of flux, a constant state of rebuilding, and of reimagining. In revisiting Kavanagh's poem, The Hospital, I'm struck again by the poet's relentless and belligerent pursuit of a mystery at the heart of human suffering, and by his transformation with light of bricks, of stone, of earth. So much of this landscape I stand upon will soon be gone. So many histories disappeared. So many versions of the site obliterated 
and remade. Astonishingly, no clear marker exists in memory of the now almost forgotten Foundling Hospital for the many lives lost. The ward in which Patrick Kavanagh was a patient has been renamed. And already the man who leaned on a crutch to watch a brown herring gull pick up the dirt is gone. But the poem is a record of the past, is a route that like a river runs underground, bright and dark, still and tremulous. The poem stakes a plant, asks us to pay attention, asks us to believe, look, a history was here, the mystery survives. Love Letter to the Hospital was written and narrated by Anne-Marie Nicoroin and produced by Ethna Hand as part of the Taking Flight series. The third piece of work we'll hear tonight is by the writer and podcaster Manchon McGann. His most recent book, Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers and Other Irish Words for Nature, is part of an exploration of how language shapes our world and how in particular the Irish language and its remnants in our own speech can provide a way of recreating our relationship with the world around us. In this essay, he takes the language of Monaghan and its near neighbours and traces the patchwork of influences from Elizabethan English to Gaelic Irish and Ulster Scots that all formed part of the linguistic inheritance of Patrick Kavanagh. This is Gulder, Fusi, Splink and Craig. Gulder, Fusi, Splink and Craig. And we'll hear it among decent men too, who barrow dung in gardens under trees. Will you come deep with me? Because I want to go deep now. I want to enter into some old words, some old ways, old sounds and ways of seeing things that we don't say anymore. Like cooter. Do you know cooter? I'm after cooter in the house for it. It's from cordach to search for something. Or gurning. What are you gurning about? From the word get on to complain. You can also say a garner for a moan bag. And then how about cron? Cron is a sow from the Irish croin, meaning a female animal or a poor aged and worn out mother. A cron would have an archon. From the Irish archon, a runty pig or a greedy child. And an archon is the same as a cupsy. Do you know cupsy? Cupsy is a runt, a piglet without a teat left on the sow to nourish it. From the Irish, cupónach, a little piglet fed on milk from a saucer. Cupón, of course, means a cup, but in Monaghan, it means a saucer. And that's what we're here to talk about, saucers. Well, no, not saucers, but Monaghan. These are all examples of the language of rural Monaghan that Patrick Kavanagh was born into and brought up with a patchwork of linguistic influences that were still heavily soaked in the Irish language. Kavanagh's language was that of the border counties. Phrases such as, I'll do it now while the giodum's on me. Giodum means a wish or desire, from the Irish giodum, which really means restlessness, unease or giddiness. Cludog meant eggs under a broody hen, and a heap of money or turf or spuds. From the Irish cludog, a small hoard or a clutch of eggs. 
But the unusual or occasionally indecipherable words from Kavanagh's upbringing are not all from Irish. What about those words I began with? Golder, Fussy, Splink and Crig. They don't all sound Irish. What about Breard? Breard. That's definitely not an Irish word. It's from the Scots, Breard, meaning the first signs of a young grain crop when it appears above the soil. Are the word bottle for a handful of straw or hay? That's not Irish. In fact, the Irish for a clutch of straw is munchar. Bottle is Old English or Scots. It's a version of a bundle. A bottle of straw is a bundle. And then there's bizen. Bizen means cattle running. That's unlikely to be Irish. It's possibly from the Middle English word bison, a disgraceful spectacle. What's up here? What's happening with the English that Kavanagh would have learnt and spoken at home in Mucker, near Inishkeen, with his father, the cobbler farmer? Where did it come from? You see, Monaghan has a unique history all of its own. And so its language is quite specific and at odds with all around it, especially South Monaghan, where Kavanagh came from. It's an area where three linguistic boundaries converge, Elizabethan English, Gaelic Irish and Ulster Scots, creating a unique linguistic milieu that still survives to some extent, just about. A rantar was a racket, a dalag was a blind, a kitchug was a small wee chat that traipsed her leg behind. Asses carried paddogs and rani meant to lay, a jory was a lost wee creature, a hill was called a bray. The reasons for all this is that County Monaghan was excluded from the official plantation of Ulster in 1591 because its land ownership had already been reorganised, mainly amongst the Irish themselves though with a significant number of new English owners too. And their numbers were to increase in the early 17th century. During subsequent plantations, between 1609 and 1618, the English and the Scots came in large numbers to the surrounding counties of Cavan, Fermanagh, Tyrone and Armagh, bringing their language and dialects with them. It had a huge impact on those counties and, of course, gradually seeped across the border into Monaghan too. Just not to quite the same extent. And this created the complex tapestry of speech that Kavanagh inherited and absorbed. For him, a key priority was capturing these natural cadences of his home place. The half-talk code of mysteries, the wink-and-elbow language of delight. Though... It has to be said that he didn't quite flaunt the eccentricities of his local language as much as his protégé, Seamus Heaney, did. Yet it was Kavanagh who paved the way by daring to celebrate the thick-tongued mumble of his people. It was his boldness that enabled Heaney, a few decades later, to fully elevate the colloquial speech of Mossbawn and the Horish and Balahi in County Derry in poems that are sprinkled with words like dulce. Farl, Flagger, Footet, Daligon. In Kavanagh's poems, you don't so much hear examples of local South Monaghan words, like Ranya for ferns from Rahanach, or Jowry for tears from Jorda, or Crav Showling for complaining from Kanavshal. These were all words that Kavanagh was familiar with, but at the time, it would have been a fair leap to insert them into poetry. 
Certainly, he went far enough in capturing the tones and the timbre of his neighbour's talk in lines like... Every blooming thing. He stared at me half-eyed. And in descriptions as simple and as stripped back as... The bicycles go by in twos and threes. There's a dance in Biddy Brennan's barn tonight. For a man whose education was gotten mainly around his father's cobbler's bench and from farmers in the neighbouring fields and the few years he spent at Kidna Minsha National School, it took courage and vision to see that this simple language had a potency worthy of poetry. There's plenty of down-to-earth language in Kavanagh, just not dialect. There's winds and bog holes and cart tracks. The straw stuff straddled the broken breaching with bits of bullwire tied. And we also get made-up words like stilly, greeny, niagarously and Parnassian. But what we don't hear is hokan. A happy pig is a hokan pig. Ranig. Can you not ranig on till morning? From ranig to wait a while. I gave him the bothered ear. To ignore someone from unchlos vower the deaf ear. This unique linguistic dialect is largely absent in the poems. It arose in Monaghan due to Irish-speaking areas still clinging on between the two English-speaking regions south and north of the border. It meant that the two dialects couldn't come in close contact with each other. So you get Northern Hiberno-English being different from Southern Hiberno-English. And then the influence of Ulster Scots and Scottish Scots on top of all that again. It's confusing, but it gives us wonderful gems like Schneevi Schnavi, a useless good-for-nothing, or a Sluterpuch, the same thing, or Lanawala, for enough, from Lan a Vala, the fill of his bag. But what we do get plenty of in Kavanagh are place names. The wonderfully resonant and redolent sounds of townlands, fields and parishes. Cassidy's Hill, Rock Savage, Shan Kodof. Words that bring to life the spirit-shocking wonder in a black slanting Ulster hill. I incline to lose my face in Ballyrush and Gorchin till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. For him, as he said, naming these things is a love act and its pledge. The sleety winds fondle the rushy beards of Shankadoff while the cattle drovers sheltering in the feather bush. Shankadoff is where Kavanagh's father eventually managed to fulfil his wife's dream of owning a few acres. They bought a poor-quality, exposed, north-facing holding there that gave them years of struggle from then on. But, as he writes in the poem Auditor's Inn, describing the stream at Connolly's Corner, myself at Anavaki on the Armagh border, he was able to escape the harsh groundedness of the terrain by both rooting himself in it and then allowing his mind to wander. The poem Auditor's Inn continues. Not sad at all as I float away, away with mother keeping me to the vernacular. I have a home to return to now. 
I have a home to return to now. That's what vernacular language gives us. Place names in particular, but those old colloquial words and phrases of our childhood too. Let me leave you with that. With nine final Monaghan words, for they're dying fast. And if they're not recorded here, then where? Grisha, hot embers left in the grate. Trake, a turn, whatever kind of a trake he took. Gallus, joyful or merry, as in the song... Room, room, me gallus boys, and give me place to rhyme. I'll show you some activity around this Christmas time. Bockham, the crook on the hinge of a shed door. Cugger, whisper. Terish, come back. It said to a cow while milking her. It's from the Irish Tararash. Ferk, the haft or the hilt of a knife. I drove it in to the ferk. Mullocher, a big stone from the Irish Mulloch, a stony grey field of Mullochers. So please take Mullocher and Ferk and Bakken and Gallus and treasure them. Find uses for them, for they're not just the heritage of Monaghan, but of all of us. We owe a debt of gratitude to Kavanagh for highlighting the cultural richness of his home county. And I personally owe a buichas more to Brian Macavard, who gathered and published all these colloquial Monaghan terms from his childhood and Kavanagh's too. Words like these are encodings of the voices of our ancestors, and they deserve to be cherished. Gulder, Fusi, Splink and Craig was written and narrated by Mancorn McGann and produced by Ethna Hand as part of the Taking Flight series. The contributors were Brian Macavard and Greta Kieran. Our final radio essay this evening is from the writer Jackie McCarrick, whose play Belfast Girls was developed at the National Theatre Studio in London and has been staged many times since. She is currently writing her first novel. Here she talks about her relationship to the work of Patrick Kavanagh and how it helped to ground and root her through important changes in her life. In the 1970s, my mother inherited a house in Ireland and my family left London, the city in which I was born and raised until I was 12. The difference between London and Ireland, border town Ireland to be precise, at this point in time was the difference between night and day. My mother's inherited house was in Dundalk and though the town had the BBC and ITN, unlike many other parts of Ireland, when we first arrived I felt as if I'd stepped back in time to the 1940s or some similarly Spartan era. It was a complete contrast to the colourful punk scene I'd been a witness to in London before we left. The priests of our parish wore long black frocks, carried canes and walked with a well-honed arrogance as if they aimed to terrify. I felt keenly the contrast between the two places and the conservatism of the church in the country we'd just moved to. Our new home, a red brick terraced townhouse that had been in my mother's family for over a century, was a veritable museum. Dark and unmodernised, it was full of dusty antiques. It had no bathroom and in our first years living in it, we would bathe at the kitchen sink or in a tin bath. Going to the outdoor loo at night was an experience in itself, usually with a candle or torch. Initially, my parents had planned to sell this house and move to Dublin, where my mother was from, but like many of their plans, this did not materialise. 
So, though I protested in every way, at twelve years of age I was going nowhere else. Dundalk at this time, and indeed until the early 1990s, was a bleak, in parts brutal, industrial town. The only way to see some genuine rurality was if you had a car. You could drive north to the Cooley Mountains or Carlingford, west to Monaghan, and we didn't have a car. The nearest easy-to-get-to-without-a-car beauty spot in the Dundalk area is Black Rock, a coastal village three miles outside the town, to which we would walk in summer or take the bus. And later, I would cycle there with my newfound friends or siblings. But Dundalk itself was not at all beautiful. It was grey, and everything about it was grey. A walk along the back of the town, along the Ramparts River, was a study in all shades of grey. There was even a Greyhound Stadium there, as well as many dilapidated buildings, some factories, and the river itself was thick with sludge and rubbish. The first time I ever saw rats grouped together was in that river, and they were immense in size. The place and our lives sound Dickensian, but this was the late 1970s, and as a border town, Dundalk was also deep in the troubles. The people were bitter, aloof, suspicious. There were few supermarkets and the smaller grocery shops were archaic. In one, wards on Park Street, the cheese was cut with a wire by a large-boned, almost mute woman with a Louise Brooks hairstyle who passed the money along on a string to a separate cash area. English, she would occasionally ask me or my siblings, as if this particular question was the only thing worth breaking her silence for. Life here at first was a shock to my system, and it took a while for me to settle into this new environment. I think it was Care's ass that did the trick. We borrowed the loan of Care's big ass to go to Dundalk with butter. In Ealing Broadway, London town, I named their several names. And suddenly, I was located. The supposedly nowhere town I'd come to live in was right there on the page, named by a famous poet and breathing the same air as London. Perhaps I should relax about the place I'd come to live in, I thought, because clearly I was not lost. The poem's author, Patrick Kavner, immediately became my lodestar. On Raglan Road Of an autumn day we encountered each other again when, a few years later, my mother told me the story of Kavner giving her a poem in a bookie shop she'd worked in in Dublin before she and my father left for London in the 1960s. She'd thought nothing of the poem until she saw Luke Kelly singing it on TV. That's the poem Kavner gave me, she cried. Of course, History tells us the inspiration for this poem is another woman, Hilda Moriarty. So we get the impression then that perhaps Kavner had told a number of women he'd written on Raglan Road about them. That morsel of autobiography made its way into my first play, The Mushroom Pickers. It forms the backstory to the character of Laura, a former actress who comes home to Borderland Monaghan from London. There she befriends Frank McElroy, the owner of the mushroom nurseries in which she now works. But McElroy is a man with a past. He tells Laura to leave Monaghan, or she will suffer the same fate as Patrick Maguire in The Great Hunger. That she will, as Seamus Heaney states in his prose collection, Preoccupations, grow down and in. Frank, knowing Laura's story about her mother and Kavner, well, 
My Story, says that like the poet, he himself is tied to the land. He is king of banks and stones and every blooming thing. From the 1980s onwards, recession had a vice-like grip on Dundalk. The town was wrecked by it, and if it was hard for my father to find a job in the late 1970s, it was impossible in the 1980s. Once I completed school, I made my own way, my return to London, my head full of dreams of becoming a writer or pop star or both. I turned down a place at Trinity College and took the boat to Holyhead. A small, careworn woman stopped me in Dunleary and gave me a holy medal and literature about help in the UK for the Irish. I threw them away. I was not at all sad to leave. I was excited. In London, I studied drama and dance and rarely thought of Patrick Kavner. Then, one day, a conversation with renowned theatre director John Wright revealed that he considered the greatest piece of theatre he'd ever seen to be Tom McIntyre's physical adaptation of The Great Hunger, which he saw at the Gate Theatre in Dublin. My first encounter with this work came in 1999 at an amateur production in the Town Hall in Dundalk. I'd come home that year to direct a cross-border production of Romeo and Juliet and was invited to see the Castle Blaney player's staging of McIntyre's play. It was like nothing I'd seen before. It was around this time that I began to think about writing my first play, a local story set on the border. Written in 1941 and arranged into 14 sections of varying verse shapes and tones, The Great Hunger shifts back and forth in time to tell how Patrick Maguire, via a deadly stealth, comes to call afield his bride. The poem, Heaney states, is no book of pastoral hours, but an enervating round of labour and lethargy. Via the inclusion of elements such as Maguire's masturbating over the ashes, the contrast between land fecundity and Maguire's repression, an equally repressed sister and a domineering mother with her venomous drawl, the story of Patrick Maguire's slow spiritual death amongst the carrots and cabbages is rendered a striking savage tale. What's remarkable and new about it is the speaker's voice. It's the voice of an omnipresent narrator. John Redmond of the University of Liverpool holds that the presence of this new voice in Kavner's writing can be explained only by an intense encounter between Kavner and Auden's poetry of the 1930s. W.H. Auden was Kavner's favourite poet, and he mentions Auden several times in his poems and prose. Auden has all the answers, Kavner claims. One of Auden's key tropes is the panorama, and in The Great Hunger, it's as if Kavner holds a camera and invites us into his dark drama. Watch him, watch him, that man on a hill. If Kavner's career is read in closer proximity to the poets of his own generation, to Auden and Spender, poets he studied and admired and with whom he shares a common agenda to modernize the poetry of the previous age and to record contemporary life, then he sheds that misnomer applied to him throughout his career, the classist peasant poet tag. He becomes instead, to quote John Redmond, smartly up to date, a satellite member of the Auden generation. My current doctorate studies at Oxford University examine Kavner's modernism. I think Kavner would be rather chuffed to think he was being studied at the alma mater of his favourite poet, in what I hope will amount to a strong effort to liberate Kavner from the unhelpful peasant poet tag given to him at home, 
which is undoubtedly hampered abroad his impact and relevance to quote Heaney's measure of a successful poet. Perhaps it is true to say, too, that I feel something of a debt to Kavanagh for resolving my disorientation at such a formative time in my life, and am now paying him back with a PhD. As we can see from the multiple inspirations for On Raglan Road, Kavanagh has the knack of making all admirers of his work feel special. He is undoubtedly a guide, a lodestar to many and not just me. To paraphrase Paul Durkin, you don't read Kavanagh, you believe him. He is something for everyone, in all seasons and times. For instance, his Canal Bank Walk poems, written in the mid-1950s during his convalescence for a lung operation, are bursting with a sense of recovery and hope. It would seem to have renewed significance in these current times, reminding us that the unworn world will still be here after the pandemic and that I and all of us will still be able to find our place in it. We borrowed the loan of Car's big ass to go to Dundalk with butter. Brought him home the evening before the market and exile that night in mucker. We hailed up the cart before the door. We took the harness inside, the straw-stuffed straddle, the broken breeching with bits of bulwark wire tied. The winkers that had no choke band, the colour and the reins. In Ealing, Broadway, London town, I name their several names until a world comes to life, mourning the silent bog and the god of imagination walking in a mucker fog. Kavanagh, The Great Hunger and Me was written and narrated by Jackie McCarrick and produced by Aidan Gilfoyle. All four of the projects we heard this evening were commissioned by the Patrick Kavanagh Centre and funded by Monaghan County Council and Creative Ireland in broadcast partnership with RTE Lyric FM. Patrick Kavanagh's original works where they appeared were reproduced with kind permission of the trustees of the estate of the late Catherine B. Kavanagh through the Jonathan Williams Literary Agency. Thanks also to Darren McCreesh of the Patrick Kavanagh Centre in County Monaghan who curated the project.